First Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through seven. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown, and we're so glad that you are with us tonight. As Bo said earlier, welcome families. Uh, It's great to have you here for baby dedication. Um, And I get to preach on a controversial passage on marriage with everyone's family here. So pray for me as we get started here. Uh, But no, it's great to have everyone here tonight. We're continuing in our series through the book of 1 Peter. And in just a moment, we're going to review last week's sermon, and then we're going to jump into this week. We covered this same passage last week and broke it up into two parts. I'll give you a little bit of review on that in just a moment. But want to let you know that next week, Right after the service, we will have a Thanksgiving meal. Uh, we do a meal monthly here at Grace Downtown. It's a great time to get to know one another and welcome new people into the church. And uh, next week, we are going to have a Thanksgiving-themed meal. Maybe you are not going to make it home for Thanksgiving, uh, or maybe you will, and you would like to um, celebrate with your church family. We'll have that opportunity after service next week. If you get our weekly email, you should have seen in that weekly email what you are supposed to bring. Uh, you will get a reminder this week. If you did not see that, if you are not on our weekly email list, we would encourage you to do so, but don't worry about bringing anything. We should have plenty of potato salad, so don't worry about it. Um, We are going to provide the main course for that, and then we're going to have everybody chip in potluck style. So you can look forward to that after the service next week. As I said, we're going through this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, but I want to first review where we've been and take a look at the theme that we're taking a look at in the book of 1 Peter. We've been taking a look at this theme that Peter is writing about, the theme of which is a living hope. What does a living hope look like and how can we have a living hope? He summarizes for us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, really his thesis for the whole book. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here we see why we can have a living hope. It's because we've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done in the past, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, because of where he sits today at the right hand of the Father on a throne that is rightfully his, we can rejoice and we can have a living hope right here, right now. 
And then for the last number of weeks, we have looked at what it looks like to have a living hope in different roles or in different areas of life. We're spending the previous week, last week, and this week talking about a living hope in marriage because that's what Peter addresses in chapter 3. So last week, we looked at how does this passage describe a living hope for the first century, particularly in marriage. And tonight, we'll take a look at how does this passage describe a living hope for us today, particularly when it comes to marriage. How does this passage describe a living hope for us today? Before we go into that, though, I want to review where we were last week. This is really a two-part sermon. If you felt deeply unsatisfied by the sermon last week, so did I. Uh, So I'm glad that we have week two this week to talk about modern application. But last week, it's very, very important, particularly for this passage, that we understand the context in which it was written. Peter wrote a letter to Jews and Gentile believers who were followers of Jesus who were exiles. We learn in the first chapter that they are exiles, meaning they live somewhere where they are not from. So they have had to move out for, could be a number of different reasons, which we'll talk more about next week. But for a number of reasons, they are not in their homeland. And he is writing to them how to have a living hope. And there's a particular situation that he addresses here in First Peter, and we need to know the situation that the readers were in to understand what he's trying to tell us. So, a summary of last week, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that so you get the full version of this context. But first, we need to know a woman's situation in the first century in a Greco-Roman culture. A woman in the first century in a Greco-Roman culture would have had no power, no influence, no education, no upward mobility, no inheritance, no even rights to her own children, no land rights. She was basically powerless in society. So that's the context in which this is being written. And then it was very unlikely that a woman would have a different religion than her husband. But Peter, Peter's audience is actually finding this to be quite common because people are starting to come to know Jesus and their spouse may or may not know Jesus. And so Peter writes to these women in this first century context and he acknowledges that some of you have husbands that do not obey Christ. Either they don't know Christ or they claim to know Christ, but they are disobedient to him. So, women in the first century, particularly in these kind of marriages, he has some words for them. Second, he is asking these women to influence their husbands not with what they have outwardly, but what they have inwardly. Namely, a living hope, a fear of the Lord, the hidden life of Christ inside of them. He wants them to influence their husbands, even if he's an unbeliever, even if they're in an unjust situation, he wants them to influence their husbands through their fear of the Lord and through the living hope that is inside of them. We also talked about last week how women are never to be subjugated to submission by their husbands. The Bible never instructs men to subjugate their wife or make their wives submit to them. This is something that the woman chooses to do. She subjects herself to her husband. She puts herself under her husband's leadership as a response to what Christ has done for her. We also talked about this 
uh, section that talks about the woman being the weaker vessel. We went through different scenarios and through process of elimination learned that the passage was talking about two kinds of weakness in the first century. One is physical weakness that women by and large are more physically weak than their husbands. And then socially, as we talked about just a moment ago in the context of the first century in the Greco-Roman world, the woman would have had no social capital, no social influence. So when it's talking about a weaker vessel, this is what it's talking about. Because the woman is the weaker vessel, it's saying that the husband then needs to show honor not only to her, but to the other women in his household as well. So this is a very brief summary of the context of the passage. Once we understand this, we can start understanding the author's intent. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I think it's important to jump back into it. When we talk about the author's intent, when we come to scripture, we're talking about two different things. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, and we're talking about the author's intent to the original audience. We're told in the New Testament that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote Holy Scripture. So the author had an original intent, meaning they were writing to a particular audience in a particular context, but the Holy Spirit has a purpose and an intent for the original audience, but also for us. That's why we strive to be people of gospel truth. That's why we preach from God's word instead of just ruminations from the pastor or topical preaching. We preach from God's word because we believe that the Holy Spirit has an intent for us today. In order to understand that intent, we first have to understand the original audience, the original context, and then we can understand what the Holy Spirit has for us today. And that's what we're going to do with the rest of this passage and the rest of this sermon. We're going to talk about what the Holy Spirit has for marriage today. How can we have a living hope in marriage today? Would you pray with me and for me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to open your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. God, thank you that we can hear from you tonight and what you have to say. God, we, as we spoke of last week, our view of marriage is often very broken. Whether it's in the worldly context and even sometimes in the church context. And for many of us in our own homes, we saw broken versions of marriage, God, and each of us, if we're married, are in a broken marriage. God, we need your help today. We need to know what a living hope looks like. We want to be a church that reflects your beauty. We want to be households that reflect the good news of the gospel. We want to raise the next generation to fear and love God and carry out the Great Commission. God, we need your help in this matter. Would your spirit move us today? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to go ahead a couple verses in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. I want to cover this section or these verses for a couple of different reasons, because it is really the bookend to this whole section where we've gone through for four weeks these different instructions that are being given to people about how to have a living hope. The second reason is we're not going to have time next week. And I, this is a very important couple of verses. So First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you, finally, there's a cue. 
Peter is closing a section that he started in chapter two. He's closing a section saying, finally, then he says who he's addressing that to all of you, meaning all the people that he has listed from chapter two, the middle of chapter two, verse 12, all the way through to now three, seven, finally to all of you. And then he's going to tell us how we should treat one another according to our living hope. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He is saying this is what it looks like to model Christ. That's the example here. Remember back in chapter two, the likewise that we keep reading? That's likewise is pointing back to be like Christ, be like Christ, be like Christ. Then in 3.8, he's going to tell them all of you, treat each one of you in the household of God with this same attitude with the same level of service, with the same value for one another, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, using familial language, a tender heart, a humble mind. This is how we are to treat one another, view one another, love one another. He reminds us again that we're co-heirs in Christ, that we have an inheritance coming that is imperishable to each one that is in Christ. He's saying that we need to first be committed to Christ. He wants to remind us that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants us to think on something that leads us to a place of humility towards one another in all of our relationships. So in light of this, what does a living hope look like in marriage today? First, it looks like two people submitted to God. Two people submitted to God to God. This is so clear in scripture and it's so clear when it looks wrong in marriage. We need two people submitted to God. Look back with me in 1 Peter 3, just a quick survey here of what we've read in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 1, likewise wives be subject to your own husbands. Verse 5, or this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Verse 7, likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. If we look ahead to verses 10 through 12 of chapter 3, it says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter over and over and over again is saying that we first need to be submitted to Christ. We need to hope In Christ, we need to fear God, that that is first and foremost what we need to do, and then everything else falls in line from there. Paul speaks similarly in Ephesians chapter 5 when he gives instructions for husband and wives. In Ephesians 5.21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he talks about wives and husbands and their roles in the marriage. But first, he says, first you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ. Two people first submitted to God. We get this wrong in marriage. We get this wrong in work. We get this wrong in relationships. We get this wrong in the family relationships. We get this wrong in the church. We get this wrong as pastors. And First Peter 5 is going to have something to say to us as pastors. We get sideways when we don't first submit ourselves 
to God. If his priorities are not our priorities, we're going to get off track very quickly. If we are not first submitted to him, ain't no way we are submitting to one another. If we are not first submitted to him, we are not going to have the humble mind that we need to see one another as co-heirs in Christ. We first need to make sure we are submitted to God. And once again, Christ is our ultimate example. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, when he was reviled, meaning Christ, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter is telling us no matter our situation, even if it is unjust, even if people revile us, even if people treat us the way they treated Christ, Christ entrusted himself to the heavenly father while doing the will of the father. And that's what we're called to as well. So first, it's two people submitted to God. Second, both men and women sacrificing, submitting, and serving with the men going first. This passage and the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians is describing a leadership for the husband where he is the first to lay down his life for his wife. He is the first to sacrifice for the family. He is the first to lay down his rights or any authority he has in order to serve the family. This, as I said last week, and I'll say again, in my mind, is the primary reason here at Grace Community Church that we believe that men hold the office of elders because men should go first in serving and laying down their life for the church. This kind of attitude is what makes marriage work. And when there isn't this attitude of leadership, of laying down your life for your spouse, then things go south very quickly. Interestingly, in Philippians and here in 1 Peter, we see instructions for men about how to love, care, and sacrifice for their spouse. And specifically, when it's talking about a married relationship between Christian and Christian, there is always more instructions for the men. Through his word, God is telling the men, this is what leadership looks like, and it's laying down your life for your spouse. There's a couple of reasons that I want us to spend some time on, and then we're going to talk very practically about what gospel marriage looks like. There are two reasons that the Bible has more instructions for men about how to treat their wives than there is for wives. First, this whole idea of men going first, of laying down their life, of modeling the love that Christ has for his church by sacrificing ourselves. The second reason is when men are loving their spouse and family well, everything else falls in line. When men are laying down their lives for their wives, for their kids, for their households, for the church, their wives want to follow that kind of leader. And let's not forget that the wife is placing herself under that kind of leadership. She is not being subjugated to that kind of leadership. She is 
submitting herself to it because she sees that kind of leadership and she says, that's how I want to be led. That's how I want to be loved is a man that's laying down his life for me. This is what it's supposed to look like. When things work this way, the family and the church and the marriage operates the way that it should and is healthy, but ultimately displays Christ and the good news of the gospel, which we'll spend some more time on here in just a moment. When a man is loving and leading his wife this way, the woman in the relationship is thriving. Sisters, you do not need to set aside your gifts, even if those gifts are leadership, your godly desires, your education, or anything else in order to follow Jesus if you have a man like this that is leading you. You should be thriving in each of these areas of life. If you want to know more about what we believe about this, we have a whole paper that we've put together that's on our website. I talked last week about uh, the paper we have to help our small group leaders and our leaders identify if there is abuse going on in the church or in the home. We also have a paper on what it looks like for men and women to serve together. I encourage you to check that out to see more of what we believe about men and women joyfully serving together. Here, we need to heed Peter's words about influence. We need to heed Peter's words about influence first. I want to say, ladies, if you are in an unjust situation, or if you are in a situation where your husband is making it difficult for you to follow Jesus because of him trying to subjugate you to his leadership, then that is something that we have procedures in place to help you address as a church. If you are in an abusive relationship, please let the elders know so that we can step in because that is not a biblical view of marriage and that is not loving your wife as Christ loves the church. We talked about that a little bit last week. However, if you're making it difficult for your husband to lead in the way that Christ leads and loves the church, then this passage is asking you to consider how influence works. In just a moment, we'll talk about this for husband and wife, but this passage is calling us to hope in the Lord, to fear God, and live with a living hope. So this is what this passage is talking about. It's interesting, once you peel it away, as we talked about last week, it's not quite as controversial as you think, and it also doesn't tickle the ear of anyone's preconceived notions. It doesn't let us off the hook to just keep thinking the way that we've previously been thinking about marriage. It makes Christ the example. It makes loving one another like Christ loved his church the focus. And the focus is on a fear of the Lord that lives, that leads to a living hope. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to talk about three ways that the gospel gives living hope to marriage. Three ways that the gospel brings living hope to marriage. First, the gospel is the model and the power for marriage. The gospel is the model and the power for marriage. Let's look back at 1 Peter chapter 3 and let's see what Peter is saying about the power of the gospel. Let's just start at the very beginning. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 
Likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. Look with me at Verse 7, the instructions to husbands. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What is Peter saying here about the gospel and how it gives us a living hope for marriage? He is showing us how very powerful a living hope is when it is lived out in our most intimate relationships. Peter is describing here a woman whose relationship with God is so strong and her hope in the Lord and the hidden quietness of her own heart is so strong that she is influencing her her unbelieving husband in a way that God can use. Look what Peter is saying about the power of the gospel in the man's life. He is using any leadership that God has given him to lay down his life for his spouse so the entire household is thriving. Peter is telling us about the power of the gospel. He's telling us about the power of the good news of the gospel lived out in marriage. That the gospel has the ability to redeem, to change, to save, to change marriages, lives, and communities. We're going to talk in just a moment about how we try to change and how we try to influence. But here, Peter is telling us how the gospel influences. This is what it looks like to know good news. This is what it looks like to have a living hope. Peter is telling us what influence looks like. Because here's the thing. We want to influence with our words, our actions, our passive aggressive behaviors. We want to change our spouse into the image of the person we want them to be. Peter is saying that's not how influence works. From the very beginning in Genesis, right after the fall, Eve is told that there's going to be a messed up relationship in the marriage because of disordered desires. There's going to be a desire to rule and reign and have authority and not live out a marriage like we're reading about in 1 Peter. Instead of being a conduit of what Christ wants to do, we become an obstacle to what Christ is trying to do when we try to manipulate or influence with our words and our behaviors and our actions. We try to change the other person or change the marriage instead of letting Christ do that work through us. When we are a conduit of his grace, we are looking to serve the other person. We are looking to influence by laying down our life. We are looking to lower ourselves. We look to live with one another in an understanding way. We talked a lot about that last week. We have empathy towards one another, an empathy that considers the other person, their strengths and their weaknesses. 
when we are a conduit of God's grace, we try to outdo one another in showing honor. This is what gospel marriage with a living hope is supposed to look like. Next, marriage demonstrates the gospel. Marriage demonstrates the gospel. The Bible over and over again uses marriage as the metaphor, the picture of Christ's love for his church. Two reasons. He wants to show us how we're supposed to treat one another, but there's a bigger picture. In Philippians, Paul uh, calls it a mystery. This is the mystery of marriage. The mystery of marriage is that it's not about us to begin with, but it's about Christ's love for his church. And Christ's love for his church comes through how he lays down his life for them, but most importantly, how he forgives, how he redeems, how he pours out grace and mercy. So when we look at that and we say that's the picture of the gospel, and then we say marriage is supposed to reflect that, why are we so, so surprised when we have to forgive one another? If you're like me, you're so surprised when you have to be forgiven or you have to forgive someone else. In fact, you can do a number of things to try to avoid the conversation altogether. So you don't have to forgive, so you don't have to be forgiven, so you don't have to admit fault or point out fault in the other person, and you just avoid the conversation altogether. But that's not what the gospel is trying to demonstrate through our marriage. I love this quote from Elizabeth Elliot. No marriage can survive without forgiveness. Marriage is a long-term commitment between two sinners. This is the opposite of what we see not only in the world, but in many marriages that go to church. When we are truly following Jesus and living with a living hope, this is what gospel marriage looks like. People that are willing to speak the truth and love to one another. And when we don't treat each other the way that we should, we're willing to forgive and be forgiven. That's what Elizabeth Elliot is talking about here. And how does marriage get better over time? Well, it's the same way that Christians get better over time. They're sanctified through the work of the Spirit, and they're moved by the good news of the gospel and what Christ has done for them. But then in marriage, for some reason, we become very law-based and very passive-aggressive, and we try to influence in these other ways instead of trusting the good news of the gospel to change our marriage as well. Here's the thing. If you're constantly forgiving and being forgiven, it's going to change you over time and you're going to build your empathy for that other person. So instead of being scared of forgiveness, you embrace giving and receiving forgiveness because you see that's where the good stuff is actually going to take place. That's where you're actually going to change. I don't know about you, but living in close range with my spouse over the last three years in quarantine has been good and hard. We have had lots of opportunities to forgive one another as we live at close range through a stressful situation over the last few years. That's why it's been so hard, but that's why we have seen new levels of fruit 
and joy as well because we have forgiven each other a lot. We don't need to be afraid of that. That's Christ at work in our marriage. Marriage demonstrates the gospel. Marriage demonstrates the good news as we lay down our life for one another, as we forgive one another, as we confess our sins to one another, as we let Christ work within us. Gospel marriage looks like two people outdoing one another and showing honor because of the good news of the gospel and the Holy Spirit changing both of you. And so over time, you as an individual and you as a couple are being sanctified through the work of God's spirit, his word, and his people in your life. Lastly, because of the good news of the gospel, no marriage is too broken for redemption. No marriage is too broken for redemption. I've done intensive marriage counseling for the last 11 years, and I have been given by the grace of God a front row seat to marriages redeemed and saved by the power of the gospel. And I can stand before you and say that any marriage can be saved through the power of the gospel because I have seen it. I have seen marriages that are absolutely the opposite of everything that we've been talking about the last two weeks. But when two sinners give themselves to a good God and the work of the spirit, their marriage can become a living hope for them and for others. That's why I can sit down with people the first week I meet with them in marriage counseling. And I say, I can't wait till you can help other people in their marriage too. And I can make them that guarantee because of the work that Christ is about to do in them. If they submit themselves to him. No marriage is too broken for the gospel to move and give those folks a living hope to the point where their marriage, our marriages, can become a living hope and can become a good news for the outside world. I've shared this with you before, but there was a friend of Dolly and I's. She was the only person I knew when we moved to Iowa City. And We spent a lot of time with her. It was our only friend in Iowa City when we moved here. We spent a lot of time with her. And we were sitting with her one day and she said, I don't really know how to say this, but why don't you hate each other? Like, wow, that's a pretty low bar. (laughs) But it was so radical for her to see a marriage, not just that was thriving, but We didn't hate each other. That's where her bar was. We have something better in gospel marriage. We have a living hope that can give hope, that can give life to our lives, our marriages, our kids, our household, our community, our church through the power of the gospel. If you're like me and you need some help in your marriage, We want to help you as a church. As I said before, we have trained counselors that can help you in your marriage, encourage you to lean into community with your marriage. And then as a church in February, we're having this conference called Real Relationships. It's not just for marriages. It's aptly titled. It is about gospel 
centered biblical relationships. There's going to be breakouts about marriage, about parenting, about singleness, about all kinds of things. But this conference in February is going to be at our North Liberty congregation. It'll be a great opportunity for us to be more equipped to live out a living hope in our relationships. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've called us to. Thank you for the power of the gospel. First, it's good news for us as individuals. Jesus, thank you for the work that you have done on our behalf. Thank you for your life lived and died for us. God, thank you that you laid down your life for your bride. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't just tell us what love looked like, but you showed us what love looks like by laying down your life for your bride. Jesus, we pray that we would be a people that live out a living hope in marriage, that seek out a living hope in marriage, that revere marriage. God, we pray that we would be a people that display the good news of the gospel in the way we love one another, the way we care for one another. And we pray that the outside world would see it and not just see that we don't hate each other, but they would see what the love of Christ looks like. Father, we want to be a church that looks more and more like your bride each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.